Hello, I'm Professor Rick Valenta from the University of Queensland Sustainable Minerals Institute, and I'm hosting this SMI podcast with Dr. Paul Gao, who's acting group leader of the Total Deposit Knowledge Research Program at SMI's WH Bryan Mining and Geology Research Centre, or the BRC as it's more commonly called. Paul has over 30 years' experience working in mineral exploration, and during his career he's worked on greenfield gold and copper exploration programs in Australia, Brazil, Papua New Guinea and elsewhere. He's worked at CSIRO investigating and modelling regional scale structural controls on mineralization, and he's led large and complex advanced exploration feasibility programs in some very challenging jurisdictions. And he joined the BRC in 2019. Welcome, Paul. Thank you, Rick. Good to be here. That was a very quick rundown of your career path, and I have to disclose to the listeners that we've worked together on and off for the last 30 years. Uh, Can you put a little bit more detail on the work you've done and maybe touch on the perspective that it's brought to you in terms of the understanding of our industry? I I guess the the thing that strikes me looking back over the time that I've been working in the mining industry is is what I've done personally in in evolving from, from the pure mineral exploration business through to, to you know, studies that, that get projects and understanding projects and how they might operate, and then through to permitting those projects and then eventually um, building those projects. So, so it's, my, my perspective, I guess, has changed dramatically in the last 30 years from, from being focused on that, on that mineral resource through to the, the whole mining life cycle and how that's all going to work, which, which is something I think that um, a, a lot of geologists, we, we tend to get trapped in, in thinking about tonnes and grade and mineral resource and, and don't think about all those other things that are going to impact on, on whether that project will be developed or not. Yeah, and, and uh, given all that experience, you know, what's your take on why it's getting harder to discover new mineral deposits? I, I think it's a bit of a natural, natural progression. You know, in, in, the, in the 20th century, we saw a, a pretty significant burst of discovery and, and exploitation on an industrial scale, basically. This, I guess, was driven by factors as, as, as mundane as, as the logistics and, and access to, to areas and transport and being able to explore those areas efficiently. But it, it was also a result, I think, of inc- advances in technology. For example, uh, analytical techniques certainly, certainly improved. Um, efficient drilling so, so that deeper holes could be drilled and, and, and other, prospective, other prospecting methods uh, developed. So, so looking at that, for example, in, in the, the 20th century, there was an incredible amount of discovery and, and development of copper deposits, uh, particularly along the, uh, the western seaboard of the Americas. And that, that almost exhausted, in my mind, that almost exhausted those deposits that were going to be easy to find and at surface. And, and I think we've truly entered another phase now. You know, I, I don't like when people use the word a new paradigm because it often turns out not to be. But I think in this case, we, we have had a serious change in how deposits are going to be available and, and how we explore for them and how often they're going to be found, simply because of that mad rush in, in the 20th century. And now we're having to get down to the, uh, the harder work, I think. And is, I mean, my, my thought has always been that, that there's been a fair amount of geography in that and that the earth's sort of a finite place. And, you know, as we continue to find the easy deposits, the deposits that aren't there are are, uh, are going to be more difficult and buried. What's, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, look, I, I, I agree. I, th- I think geography has been, has been shrinking. And if, if you look at, what, whilst we have greater access and ability to access areas, if you look at the number of frontier terrains that are, are available now that are out, outcropping for starters, or even new countries that people haven't spent too much time exploring in, there are a lot less than they were 100 years ago. 
So, so I think it's sort of a pretty natural progression that, that finding those large deposits at surface is, is not going to be uh, happening as regularly as it used to be. So before I ask my next, next question, I want to ask a preliminary one that involves a little bit of jargon. Um, and hopefully we'll be able to weave that back in and explain why. But, but my question is, what's an IOCG and why should anyone care? Yes, yes, exactly. Well, depending on to who, you, who you talk to, there, there, there are not a lot, a lot of people that uh, may care about it, and which, which is not surprising um, you know, when, when you look at the world's inventory. Uh, an, an ICG, I'll, I'll step back, is an iron oxide, copper gold deposit. That's what the acronym is. Uh, and and it's, it's a style of deposit that doesn't contribute a, a large amount to the, to the Earth's current copper inventory. If you look at the figures, about 70% of the world's copper inventory is porphyry and related SCARN deposits. Uh, about 15% is sediment-hosted deposits, and then IOCG deposits come in a, um, come in a pretty much a poor, poor third. But I think that that's going to, going to change in, in the future. And that's why we should care about this, because they're, they're going to become, I think, an increasing uh, proportion of, of global copper production. And there are two, two very large deposits. There is Olympic Dam in, uh, in South Australia, and there is the Candelaria deposit in, uh, in, in Chile, which is, is now up to about a billion tonnes of ore. So they, they are now starting to be understood as pretty significant um, deposits. And further to that, I, I think why we should care is, is that we really need to be looking at them. If you look at the copper business, you know, the, the, the big porphyry era was, was in the um, 1900s. We had so many large deposits come online, and then, then um, people started to understand them, and, and in the 1970s we, we had those, those seminal works by um, you know, Lale and um, Gilbert, uh, etc. cetera, uh, in the 1970s that, that really led, led to categorising those deposits and what they looked like, which then helped people further down the line understand how they're going to explore for them. And, and, and what has happened in the porphyry space is that now, if you look at, at the, the large porphyry discoveries in the last 20 years, they are the sort of things like um, Oyutolgoi in Mongolia, Golpu in PNG, perhaps Cascabal in uh, Ecuador. These are all deposits where, where the copper, the porphyry copper deposits, where, where the copper core is deeper, harder to find, and it's going to end up being block cave mining. And how, that's, how that, that exploration has happened is that people have looked at the outcropping deposits, formulated a model about them, and then been able to enter that deeper search space. So I think with the IOCG deposit uh, model, we're just entering that phase now where people are starting to understand the model that will allow us to be searching, uh, searching even deeper. And I guess the reason I asked that question is that um, you're one of the few people who've worked in most of the major IOCG districts in the world. So first, you know, doing your PhD in, in the area around Olympic Dam and, and developing an understanding of, of the regional context there, then quite a long time in Mount Isa, where, um, where there are a number of deposits that are, that are really similar and, and, and actually very variable in their characteristics. And then, then you moved to the Carajás region in northern Brazil. So you moved your family there and led a very successful program. And I was just wondering if you could tell us about some of your successes there and some of the challenges. Yes, yeah, for sure. Oh, it's a fascinating and exciting place to work, the Carajás, up in up in northern Brazil. And it's it's you mentioned Mount Isa there as well, and and that that's another um, fa fascinating compare and contrast because I, I I was in Mount Isa for six years and then I, I moved to the Carajás, and it was quite fascinating to see that they're they're somewhat similar terrains. They're 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 both one of those little pieces of the Earth's crust that is so heavily endowed 
not only with metals but with different types of metals. So that in, around around Mount Isa in northwest Queensland, for example, you have world class lead, zinc, copper, uh, phosphate mines. You also have gold uh, and, and uranium mines, and potentially uh, rare earths and other metals out there. So it's 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 all crammed into one tiny little bit of the Earth's crust. And and the Katajas is is very similar to that. It's well known for its uh, for its iron ore mines, uh, and that's that's its biggest biggest producer. But it has uh, inc- incredible deposits of, of, of copper gold, of the iron oxide copper gold, IOCG deposit. But it also also has a raft of um, nickel laterites as well, as well as uh, manganese mineralisation and, uh, and and gold deposits there as well. So it's it's yeah, the, the Karajas was certainly a pretty exciting exciting place to be. So. You know, it was it was exciting in that it it matched the um, the mineral endowment of of Mount Isa, for example, but it it was it was very different in terms of I I really don't like to use the word maturity, but in terms of exploration maturity, I, I noticed a marked a marked difference, and I, I guess why that was was um, a the discovery in that time. You know, in in Mount Isa, the, the lead and zinc were were dis, were discovered back in the nineteen twenties, I think, and the copper in the fifties. Whereas, whereas you look at the Katajas, then, um, then the um, 1960s, I think, was when the first helicopters flew in and, and, and saw US Steel, it was, the company, flew in and, and, and saw and, and prospected the iron. And then the copper gold at Saloba was discovered 10 years later in 1977. And then in, in 19, uh, the 1980s was, was one of the, the most recent um, massive gold rushes with with the Seja Palada gold deposit, very rich gold deposit. So so it, it was basically starting its journey a little bit later than Mount Isa, for example. So it was much less of a, um, a mature terrain. And you, you also couple that with data that's available. In Australia, we, we are blessed with, with a plethora of data sets, um, pre-competitive, I guess we call them data sets, um, you know, you know, airborne magnetic data and compilations of, of data, etc. But when you look at um, in, in Brazil, whilst the mining regulatory situation is, is very good, the data collection is very poor. So that you look at a world-class mineral province like the Carajás, and for example, their regional um, magnetic aeromagnetic data sets are, are basically patchworks from from companies that most people can't access. So, so it's very similar terrain, Mount Isa and, and the Carajás, but but different in, in, in various ways. Now you mentioned discoveries too. Um, yeah, we we did. Um, we I was with Extrata Copper at that stage, and we, we did have have our main discovery was was a thing called the Pedro Branca deposit, which is an iron oxide copper gold deposit. When, when I moved into that team, we we had so many great targets that um, it, it was actually sitting on the back burner. Um, there'd been about ten or eleven holes drilled into it, and the first hole was was a, a fantastic hit, but the others had been all a bit wishy washy, I guess, and it was sitting there waiting to be tested. So we put it all together and and did the did the work uh, to target more deeply, and and that came up with uh, with a good uh, copper gold mineral resource, which then we uh, vended into an Australian company, Avanco Resources, and then uh, it's now with another Australian company, Oz um, Minerals. So after coming back from Brazil. You went quickly into a much broader role with Extrata on the giant Frida River copper gold project. What was that experience like? Well, pro- probably two words. I think eye opener. It was um, it was it was a f- phenomenal. Um, firstly, the, the country itself, um, Papua New Guinea, is a very very complex place. It has on the order of hundreds of different uh, languages. It doesn't have a lot of mobility in terms of groups um, mixing, etc. So it's it's very variable um, throughout throughout the country. I guess that that was in terms of Papua New Guinea, but but in terms of um, Frida River itself, it's you know it's it's a it's a porphyry copper gold deposit, 
and and it's it's a fantastic deposit. It's very large, but it is very very remote. Okay, we we worked there, and I don't know if it's still the case now, but um, but at that time we had one vehicle on site, and that that was that was the emergency vehicle at the at the, at the airstrip. Um, everything else had to be supported by um, by helicopters essentially. So it was it was a an incredibly challenging place to work, and and when when we're in the middle of the feasibility study there, we, we were trying to um, improve the confidence in the mineral resource, and we drilled fifty thousand meters of, of diamond drilling one year, and that was all all helicopter supported with with no no vehicles. So so it was a very very tough place to work, but uh, the the thing that I really enjoyed about working up there was that um, I guess it's it's moving from being being a geologist to as soon as you go to a large complex project. Um, that, that was in the feasibility stage, all of a sudden you start to understand that um, whilst, whilst as exploration geologists we love to think it's all about discovery, but there are, it is only the first step in, in the loop. Sure, it's a critical step, but, but it's, it's almost not the most important. There are so many other things that need to go on. And then when you start seeing the interaction of that mineral resource with, um, with, with the engineering and how it's going to be mined and, and then the metallurgy, you start to realise how many complex uh, interlinking factors there are. And that's, that's only what we'd call, I guess, the technical, technical parts. And then you start looking at, at, at how you're going to handle the waste in that sort of area where there's about nine metres of rainfall every year. And then you look at the uh, the communities that are, that are around there. It's it, around Frida River. It's, it's essentially a... Um, I guess a, a subsistence agriculture um, society, uh, and then you go and put a, a a mining project in that area. There is some artisanal gold happening, but you put a large mining project in that area, and and you really do impact that area. Um, so so we were the main employer for those uh, for the local communities. But but with with that, obviously you're bringing benefits. But but with that comes comes some difficult difficult things that you need to handle, and and one of those with with a long lived. Um, project in, in development, you know, Frida River was, was I think the first uh, lease was taken there by MIM Carpentaria Exploration in the late 60s and it still hasn't been developed so we've been looking at, at 50 or 60 years of work happening there and the communities that live there have seen that 50 or 60 years and whilst in, in we work in the mining business we're used to a very cyclical um, cyclical manner of, of working when communities see that and their expectations are raised and then taken down again and then raised again and down again it's it's a very difficult uh, thing to keep that that relationship with local communities on on a solid footing in a solid realistic footing yeah so so yeah it, it's fantastic and and it um and, and it really opened my eyes to to there's more than geology and mineral resources to getting any any mineral mm. project off the ground yep no, yeah. that's certainly true yeah so, what attracted you back to academia, and why, you know, why the BRC? Yeah, well, look, I, I, I think um, what what should happen more regularly is that uh, is that people move between between the mining industry and and academia, and and it, I guess, to, to give companies mining companies credit, it's often done through through partnerships or research projects that they sponsor, and they have uh, their their people involved in that. And I think it's particularly important that you, you have younger people involved in that as well, so they're exposed to, to all these different uh, different technologies and concepts. So I, I worked for um, I, I had a spell with CSIRO in the late uh, late nineteen nineties, working with their structural controls and mineralisation group, which um, I was working with Alison Ord and John Walsh at that stage, and, and we did we did some um, great projects looking at the, the very large controls in particularly Chile and uh, and New Guinea on on emplacement of porphyry copper deposits. 
Um, and then it's and then I'm back at the and then I was obviously back out in, in the mining industry and then I've I've um, come back to um, or come to BRC uh, last year. So so I, I think this regular interaction and and and, and changing of, of people's work environments is, is only only a good thing. I, I think it's very easy to get to get closeted and, and not be exposed to to all the new technologies and concepts that might be being developed in, in these research organisations. Why why BRC? I guess it. it the work that, that BRC is doing and, and the people here um, really tie, tie in with the sort of things that are, that are close to my heart, which is, which is um, mineral deposits, applied research to mineral deposits and, uh, and mineral deposit um, exploration, as well as taking that step down, downstream, I guess, into, into the geometallurgical um, space, which I think is becoming more and more important uh, with, with every passing day. Yeah, so, so yeah, I, I, it's been great to come back and, and, and be here. Keeping in mind what you said about... Uh about Frida River and, and some of the challenges you had there, was there an attraction, you know, in, in terms of being involved with with the broader uh, Sustainable Minerals Institute as well? Oh, for sure, yes, yeah. Well, well, that that was one of the the attractions. I, I remember it was probably about two years ago going to uh, a conference that I, that you had organised, the Complex Ore Bodies Conference, and and it was. Um, and it was was invigorating to see, and and it tied in with with what I guess my mindset was changing that it's not just about about mineral resources, but it's more about how you access those those mineral resources, and and SM, SMI covering all this broad this broad field all, all the way from the, the geology and the metallurgy and the mining through to the the communities and rehabilitation of land and and water and and uh, and, and the lot it's. Um, yeah, it's it's an absolutely fascinating way to work, and and I, I think that that sort of ethos of of stepping beyond pure geology, mining, metallurgy is is starting to infiltrate the industry now. For example, I'm, I'm a member of the local Oz IMM committee, and and more and more I see that we are getting members, for example, from safety, HR, environment, communities, etc., coming into the into the Oz IMM. So it's it's no longer the Australian Institute of Mining and Metallurgy. It's 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 now expanding in terms of its disciplines that it covers. Could you tell us a bit more about the BRC's current involvement in the Mount Isa region? How important is that work with your perspective as someone who's lived and worked there for a significant period of time? Yeah, well, look, the the BRC involvement in the um, in the, in the Mount Isa region is is pretty extensive. Um, you know, we won't go into it in too much detail because there's there's so much there. But I guess for my my background, I. I was in Mount Isa for about six years uh, working in the exploration uh, for Mount Isa mines up there. And, and when you live in a place like that, you, you really start to understand that um, you know, mining towns, towns are different and that, um, and that people are born there and they live there and it's their, their home. And, and so you can't, you can't just let that disappear. And, and there's so much infrastructure and, and, uh, and other um, equipment up there and that um, really it needs to be supported. You know, there haven't been a lot of discoveries uh, up there recently, and, and I guess that ties into the work that um, the BRC is doing. It's Most of the programs, I guess, are happening, uh, whilst there's some uh, happening with the uh, mining companies in that district, uh, most of the projects, I guess, are, are tied into the, um, the Geological Surveys New Discoveries program uh, up there. They, they range from uh, interpretation of, of regional data all the way across the inlier to more specific, detailed work around the deposits themselves. One of the, the key projects I've been heavily involved in is the is the Mineral Deposit Atlas program, which is is aimed at providing explorers with, with an understanding of what, what what all of those different and varied deposits in Mount Isa actually look like in in the data sets that they collect on a routine basis. 
Um, so there's a lot of historic data out there documenting all, all of that work that's happened. So, so we're basically aiming to, to pull that together, distill it, and, uh, and, and let people have an easily accessible and digestible um, product that, that can help them understand exactly what they're looking for and if they're getting close to it. So what sort of reception has there been from industry for that deposit atlas? Oh, it's been good, I think. I, I, I think industry, industry realises how, how important it is to, um, to, to know what they're encountering in the field and, and how close that is, is to deposits that are, that are already known. So, so we've, we've had a great reception. We've, we've given various uh, workshops where we've run through uh, all of the atlases, both uh, in, in person in, in 2019 and more online this year. So, so people are, are, you know, are really particularly uh, interested in that. So what do you think exploration is going to look like in 10 years' time? And, uh, and what do you think the role of research is in getting there? Oh, look, I, I, think, I think exploration, <laughs> we talk 10 years' time, that's a, uh, it's, it's going to have changed a lot, I'm sure, by, by 10 years' time. And, and we're seeing so much change, change at the moment uh, in the exploration business. I guess a lot of the change that I see is related to how, how much data is, is pouring in for, for explorationists. Um, it, it used to be that geologists were essentially data-starved and, uh, and, and there were so few, few data points uh, and there had to be so much interpolation and extrapolation happening um, into areas which you had no data. But uh, that's, that's changing dramatically and we, we see it on a daily basis. If, if you look, for example, at, at what sort of chemistry is analysed or what sort of data is collected by satellites, there's been order of magnitude change in data collection in the last 10 years. So, so the, the key is then, well, if people are swamped with all this data, how do they get to the nub of the problem and, and what are the critical parameters that they, they need to understand? So, so I think that exploration business is, is changing, there's more data, and then so what, what is the, the role of, of research in that? And, and I think it is to, to help distill that data and manage that data and help people understand what is the actual important part of that, um, of that data. So I think that is, is a big change that we see happening now and I can only see it, uh, it accelerating. Well, thanks very much for your time today, Paul. Thank you. If you want to find out more about Paul's work and other mineral research underway at the SMI, please visit our website at smi.uq.edu.au. Thanks for your company.